This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. Academic experts are important to our media. We need people who understand the important but complex issues that we need to know about and people who can explain it to us in a way that we can understand. But that second bit is often a bit of a stumbling block. Some experts are good at it, but some aren't, no matter how much they know. Five years ago this week, online outlet The Conversation kicked off here, promising newsworthy articles with academic rigour and journalistic flair, and all for free. So five years on, is that working out, and do we have the appetite for what they add to our media? I think all journalists should avoid being a slave to clicks, you know. It, it's, that, that's a, that's a one-way trip to, you know, media hell, really. But we're all slaves to the algorithm to some extent, aren't Indeed. we? Also, we'll look at the first outing in Parliament for our new Minister of Broadcasting, Willie Jackson, facing MPs' questions about what pumped-up public funding for public media might achieve. But before all that, one of the worst ever tragedies on our roads happened last weekend, creating headlines for days and raising searching questions in the media about what, if anything, could be done to stop crashes like this. Good morning, it's nine o'clock. I'm Donna Marie Lever. In breaking news, multiple people have died in a crash on State Highway 1 south of Picton. That was News Talk ZB News at nine last Sunday morning, and the details that came in through the day only made it sound worse. This was the news at noon. It's midday, I'm Sandy Hodge. Police have confirmed seven people have died in this morning's horror head-on crash south of Picton. The crash between a van and a truck happened around 7.30 this morning on State Highway 1. Joey Dwyer reports. One of the dead has been confirmed as a child. Several others were injured, one person critical, one serious and one minor. Now this was the deadliest single crash anywhere in New Zealand since 2019 and one of the worst for decades in the South Island. And adding to the sadness was the news that many members of one family had died in one of the vehicles and they were already grieving, having just attended a funeral. Now on the day, some people also objected to the New Zealand Herald's website publishing photos under the headline... Images reveal true horror of smash that killed seven, along with a video of the wreckage which had the words absolute carnage right at the front, though that was a quote from police officers at the scene in comments that ran in many news bulletins. The Herald did warn viewers that images may be disturbing, but there was no question that that story and those scenes would be leading the 6pm news that night on television as well. One of the country's worst car crashes. Seven people are killed and three others injured after a van collides with a truck near Picton. We'll be live from the scene. There was helicopter footage of the crash scene in that News Hub at 6 report and some grainy long lens stuff shot during the day from behind cordons, after which reporter Juliet Speedy appeared live in the dark with the wreckage lit up behind her as a dramatic backdrop. Well, Tom, what you're looking at now is the wreckage of that van you just heard about there in my story. And quite frankly, it is a miracle anyone survived. What was a van is now a crumpled heap of metal. The police have just escorted us in past the cordon. But while the officials in charge were saying nothing about the possible cause of the crash, neighbours speaking to News Hub readily offered their opinions like this. My cause of it just speed. If a ferry's late, it's actually worse. Whether speed was a factor is yet to be determined. 
Nearby residents also told reporters that accidents had been happening for years on this road, and News Hub's Juliet Speedy channeled their concerns in her live cross from the scene like this. They say there needs to be a reduction in the speed limit on parts of this road because of the sheer amount of traffic and also the speed that people go getting to and from the ferry. They say there needs to be big signs. This is a high crash area and they say please let this be a wake-up call and you'd have to ask yourself if seven dead on a stretch of road where many others have died isn't a wake-up call, then what is? But while Juliet Speedy answered a question with a question there, the question being asked on Monday morning news shows was, what must happen to stop this happening again? On Monday morning, Marlborough's Mayor John Leggett told Today FM we should all wait and see what an investigation into Sunday's crash actually reveals. But look, we leave it to the experts to look at the uh, circumstances around the crash and as to whether there can be any safety improvements made. Uh, the fullness of time will bring that out. I think now's the time to just to reflect on the tragic loss of life and the people that are left and, uh, and really sending our thoughts and condolences to them. It turned out that in the last decade there have been five other deaths and 21 serious injuries on State Highway 1 between Picton and Blenheim. Not good, but far from the deadliest stretch of road in the country by any means. And meanwhile, his deputy Nadine Taylor on the AM show urged people not to jump to conclusions based on previous fatalities. But what I've learned um, in council is that you need to wait for the reports to come out. Each accident is quite unique and it has some unique factors that contribute to it. Uh, the, the fatality uh, two years ago... Uh, the truck driver was prosecuted for dangerous driving and, and he was under the influence of drugs at that time. The the one that I attended uh, a, a few months back was a single car accident. It was a young man and, and speed was involved. It, it was a completely different factor. And we don't know what the factors are in this one. Um, so we'll need to wait for the report to come out to see if there's any commonalities. But elsewhere, on talk radio, hosts and guests were not inclined to wait for the facts. Mike Hosking turned to a prominent professional driver for answers. As hard as it is to say, sometimes tragedy happens and all the laws and advice and ad campaigns in the world won't stop them. Is that fair? I think that's very fair. Um, you know, there's, there's situations and scenarios you think about uh, what happened yesterday. Um, we're not sure. We don't exactly know what happened. Now, Greg Murphy claimed that fate put those two vehicles on a collision course last Sunday, but he said bad roads and bad drivers remain a main problem. But he also told News Talk ZB that those charged with making our roads safer had tunnel vision. Oh, and they're sticking to just spending millions of taxpayers' money on, on horrible advertising campaigns that are not going to make one iota of difference. It's because advertising is a lot easier, isn't it? And Mike Hosking wasn't the only one on News Talk ZB endorsing Greg Murphy's dismissal of road safety advertising. Those stupid road safety ads I've been pouring money into. Do you think any of them have arrived at the office today after that absolutely horrific road smash on State Highway 1 yesterday and sent around an email saying, hey, let's get together later today and think about how we can do this better. The ads might not be Hitting the mark. No, that won't be happening today. That was News Talk ZB's Canterbury Mornings host, John MacDonald, sheeting home the blame to Waka Kotahi and its advertising, while the Wellington Morning ZB host, Nick Mills, had the same target in his sights. All we've been hearing about in the last 12 months is Waka Kotahi's Road to Zero campaign and their very expensive ad campaigns. Surely we need our road transport agency to look after the roads throughout New Zealand. 
caller after caller phoned in to an increasingly emotional Nick Mills with their own accident anecdotes and complaints about substandard stretches of roads, and some got in touch to tell Nick Mills he wasn't helping. Hi Nick, you're speculating a lot about this accident, and to be honest, being quite disrespectful about it all. Paul Radio says David. Actually David, I don't believe that I am being disrespectful at all. I'm very, very upset about this and jarringly, in between the talkback was some of the road safety advertising made by News Talk ZB for Waka Kotahi that Nick Mills was condemning as a waste of money. Let's check in with Waka Kotahi, the transport agency now. Mark Owen is with us. Morning, Mark. Of course, another long weekend this weekend's Matsuriki. Some safety advice, I'm sure, for road users travelling this weekend. Yes, good morning, Adam. With lots of people heading away for the long weekend, ensuring Kiwis get to where they're going safely and return home again is our top priority. But for more than a quarter of a century, Waka Kotahi and its forerunner, the NZTA, has been running extensive ad campaigns. What convinced the radio host that these were ineffective and merely soaking up money that could be spent on barriers, road widening and passing lanes? Well, they didn't say. And could it actually be that the road toll, which is stubbornly sitting around 325 a year now for years, could be worse without regular reminders in the media of the consequences of speeding and bad driving? That wasn't a possibility the host considered when reacting to the anger and sadness of the seven people dying in one crash last Sunday morning. Five years ago, Stuff looked at this question and concluded it was probably money well spent because road deaths in New Zealand have been trending down since a spike of 795 back in 1987. There have been many more cars on the road and many more trips being made today as well. Back in 1995, a ramped-up campaign of speeding and drink-driving enforcement was launched, backed up by the first campaign of graphic TV advertising, and those were still a novelty at that time, but whose cost and effectiveness back then were also questioned. A study by Melbourne's RMIT and Lincoln University here analysed the campaign and concluded that it did reduce casualties from crashes in the two years that followed. What they called fear-based advertising, targeting unsafe driving, had reduced fatal accident rates among female drivers under 34, they said, as well as male drivers aged 35 to 54, though their youngest male drivers had not been influenced, they concluded. And 20 years on, it's those drivers who would be now in that bracket that might be. On Tuesday morning, RNZ News was leading with news that Waka Kotahi was falling short of highway safety targets for reasons other than simply spending some money on adverts. A unit within Waka Kotahi that includes its transport network safety team has been rated so ineffective it's being pulled apart. The plan is outlined in an internal report obtained by RNZ and comes four years after the agency was slammed for its mass regulatory failings. And RNZ's Phil Pennington wasn't just reaching for reckons out of the air prompted by that tragedy in the headlines. He'd been on the case for months, speaking to sources and using the Official Information Act to secure previously unknown but highly revealing reports. He says we don't have a risk-based and intelligence-led prioritised work programme. Well, if you try and pass what that means, risk-based, intelligence-led prioritised work programme regards road safety, you start scratching your head, well, what are you putting in place to keep the road safe if you don't even have that? And Phil Pennington also got some hard data about just how short Waka Kotahi had fallen in physical road changes. For example, just one-fifth of the median barriers due to be put in place by 2024 have been done to date. And that stretch of road where Sunday's crash happened, it turns out, 
wasn't a priority. There haven't been enough fatalities there. That in that one and a half case stretch where this terrible accident happened, there had been one fatality in the last 10 years, and in the whole 26 kilometres, five fatalities. Now, better roads overall over the years is one reason that the road toll has fallen over the past 20 years. And new legislation, education and safer cars are all factors as well, and so too is enforcement. And on Wednesday, RNZ News had more on that. Police caught 5,000 drivers breaking restricted licence rules by carrying passengers last year. But figures released under the Official Information Act show police issued just 10 written warnings, far fewer than the hundreds issued in previous years. And this too was the result of more painstaking work over months by RNZ's Phil Pennington, sparked by earlier fatalities on the roads that had also led the media to raise their question, what must be done to prevent these preventable deaths? RNZ sought the figures from police after crashes that have killed multiple teenagers. Car crashes are a leading cause of death among young people. Almost 42,000 drivers have been caught since 2017, breaking the restricted licence rule against carrying passengers. 18 were prosecuted. You only have to go back to last April for the last big fatal car crash that led the news and sparked nationwide anguish. Four teenagers died when a ute collided with a truck on a straight stretch of road in Invercargill with a 50 kilometre an hour speed limit. And later, the leader of Students Against Drunk Driving, Donna Kavorko, a former police officer, told Morning Report the tolerance for this was part of a wider social question. Why are we allowing this to happen? You know, why are parents accepting that their children are just breaching and they can't do anything about it or they're turning a blind eye or they're actually even encouraging them to take their siblings or their mates out to their games or their social events? Um, Why are we accepting this as a culture that it's okay? It's like drink driving. We did a lot of work around the, the culture around drink driving and it's less acceptable now. So, the deeper you dig into an issue which periodically explodes in our media in the emotional wake of a major tragedy, the more you find it's more complicated than the instant and emotional reactions of pundits and presenters in the media would have you believe. And certainly a much bigger issue than just the amount of money spent on ads for road safety rather than more safety barriers on the roads. As we've mentioned many times on Media Watch lately, the government's creating a new not-for-profit public media entity to replace RNZ and TVNZ, and it's committed more than $330 million to part-fund it over the next three years. And this week, another important development, the draft legislation and charter governing the new media entity was lodged with Parliament. Now, this new entity, which desperately needs a new name, will for now be called Aotearoa New Zealand Public Media, and the law will come into effect if it's passed in March next year. RNZ and TVNZ will then become subsidiaries of this new operation, operating under a new board, with all current services still provided, and RNZ services still ad-free. Now, the bill can be seen on Parliament's website, where there's also a call for public submissions to the select committee that will debate and scrutinise the bill. Next Tuesday, the bill will also be introduced to Parliament, when the new Minister of Broadcasting, Willie Jackson, will have to promote it and then defend it. And next week, Willie Jackson will talk with me about all that here on Media Watch, as well as other media matters and his own track record in the media in the past. But this week, the new Minister of Broadcasting and Media had his first outing in Parliament, fronting up to the Social Services and Community Committee about how the big boost in Budget 2020 will be spent. 
But disappointingly, most of the MPs questioning him were not doing so in the interests of parliamentary scrutiny on behalf of we the people and our public money. This was mostly party political probing. Now, Willie Jackson's also the Minister of Māori Development, overseeing the funding of Māori media as well, and his National Party counterpart Melissa Lee opened the questioning by asking if Willie Jackson would fold Māori media into plans for the new public media entity. And Willie Jackson responded like this. If you're talking about Māori, I believe Māori can play a major part in, in terms of mainstream and Māori views should not be sidelined. Um, and I think that all New Zealanders can participate. Uh, and we've got a shining example of that happening uh, in the next couple of days with, with Matariki, where we've got the whole country. will be participating in something that we, where the nation, I think, will advance. But to that, Willie Jackson added that it's not his job to run the new public media entity. National MP Simon O'Connor then pressed Willie Jackson about the politically controversial Public Interest Journalism Fund, a three-year media funding exercise that critics like Simon O'Connor claim has raised serious questions that it makes the media compliant to the current government. But, oh no, it doesn't, Willie Jackson insisted. You seem to be running the line, Simon, that they have to pledge this un. Uh, divided love for the uh, for the government, but nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, I can assure you, coming from the Maori uh, um, broadcasting fraternity, uh, that they're so critical it's just not funny. Now, the Public Interest Journalism Fund is a three-year project that comes to an end next year, and it's supposed to support public and private media to create more at-risk journalism. And in his introductory remarks, Willie Jackson described it as a response to the media's COVID-induced financial crisis, and he told the committee there's no plan now to continue funding it beyond next year. But his opposition counterpart, Melissa Lee, pressed that same point as Simon O'Connor, like this. There is a perception that it has created a... um, um, a media bias, that only media that were supposedly mouthpieces for government were getting the funding. And I'll give you a quote. And what I'd like to know what the minister would say to people who say, and I quote, the perception has grown that funding is only available to media who consistently toe the line on political issues, and in particular those related to the Treaty of Waitangi or co-governance. Those seeking to challenge these things need not apply. What are the odds that a funding application that include a TTT response that disputed modern ideas of co-governance, even criticise it, would get funded slim to nine, would be my expectation, unquote. What Mm. do you say to that? Now, Melissa Lee didn't say what she was quoting there, but those were the words of Sean Plunkett, the founder of new media outlet The Platform, in a freshly published piece furthering its campaign against public funding of private media in general and the Public Interest Journalism Fund in particular. And Willie Jackson knew exactly where that quote had come from. I think what you're saying to me is a load of nonsense. It goes along with the nonsense I hear from um, Sean Plunkett and them, you know, who, who, who run this whole line. That uh, And don't get me wrong, I, I don't have a problem with Sean either. Uh, but I do have a problem when he says, oh, you've got to sign up to the, the Maori, uh, you know, the Mahutas and Jackson's uh, ideology. What a load of nonsense. You know, you, you, you know I, 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 I really uh, embrace people who want to have a debate. You know, I've spent my life debating people on radio and TV. Well, indeed he has, and we'll talk about that colourful media career and the funding of public media next week with the Minister here on Media Watch. 
Now, at that estimates hearing on Wednesday in Parliament, there were also claims of pro-government bias and a question from ACT MP Damien Smith, who also asked the Minister for Culture and Heritage, Carmel Cipollone, about New Zealand On Air funding a politically controversial documentary about Green MP Chloe Swarbrick, and he asked her about controversy over the conflict of interest claims surrounding the current chair of the New Zealand Film Commission. Now, those are legitimate issues for MPs to ask about, but they're pretty minor matters for a parliamentary committee that's supposed to be scrutinising, on our behalf, the spending of hundreds of millions of dollars on public media now and into the future, mainly under a new public media entity for which so much is yet to be settled, let alone revealed to the public. Let's see if the MPs focus a little better on that when the bill to bring the public media entity into being is read in Parliament next week and subsequently scrutinised by a select committee. Last week, News Hub's special correspondent Patrick Gow was all over the media talking about his documentary for TV Channel 3, Patrick Gower on Booze. And it was pretty personal, with the personality himself admitting he had a problem. But recognising that plenty of other people do too, 3 ran a live discussion the next night in which Patrick Gower took a back seat and experts had their say. On newsroom.co.nz, the co-editor Mark Jennings, who's a former news boss at TV3, pointed out that plonking a group of talking heads into the middle of primetime doesn't happen much on New Zealand TV these days. And in spite of COVID, climate change and conflict on the rise, our main channels have simply stuck with light entertainment, he said. Now, it's not just on TV where experts who dwell on the details of big issues have a hard time cutting through in our media. And with that in mind, Australian journalists a decade ago launched The Conversation, an online outlet to make academics' expertise available in articles for free. Now, you don't need to create a new media outlet just to do that, but The Conversation, backed by the country's universities, employed journalists as editors to make their wisdom more readable and available to any other media outlet that cared to run it. Now, The Conversation took off in other countries from 2012 onwards, including this one. Five years ago, the conversation fired up here as an offshoot of the Aussie operation with one single editor, ex-RNZ science specialist Veronica Maduna. Five years later, she's now in a team of three and the conversation is backed by all eight New Zealand universities and led by former Listener Magazine and Penguin Books editor Finlay MacDonald. So, more bodies are publishing more stories from more of our academic experts on the conversation but is it cutting through in a media marketplace with more competition than ever for people's eyeballs? The original idea for the conversation goes back to 2009 when a a clever guy named uh, Andrew Jaspin, who was a British-Australian journalist and a fairly storied editor in his own right, just had this light bulb moment that universities were essentially big virtual newsrooms just waiting to be tapped. He came up with the idea of putting journalists together with academics, but the idea worked, and you can't say that about every startup, you know, and it's really still only 10 years old, uh, but it's gone global in that time. You know, it coincided with all the big changes in the media as well, and the advent of social media and just the digital revolution. It turned out to be just a really good idea, and it continues to prove that point. Just take an example. So I've been looking at this program on how we had that terrible highway crash last Sunday. A lot of pundits and campaigners have been criticising the sums spent on road safety advertising. What a waste of money. That could be going on on road barriers. And there is some academic literature I found going back 20 years analysing do advertising campaigns on road safety 
save lives. I mean, is that the sort of thing that if you want to, you can pick up the phone, nag an expert or two and try and get a comment piece about that? Yes, absolutely. There's two ways we work. We commission directly from academic authors or we receive pitches from them and we decide what to commission or not depending on our capacity and so on. Uh, But that's exactly how it works. And it's pretty standard journalism elsewhere in the mainstream to ring experts when you need context, background and analysis for any subject. The beauty of the conversation is that we, in effect, take out the middleman uh, or woman and we commission the expert themselves to write about the area they have expertise in. The journalism comes in at the next stage uh, in terms of editing and, and publishing. But a lot of academics, when they write, uh, I mean, they, they are trained to write kind of the opposite of a gripping, concise, compelling article. You know, their training will tell them to include as much detail as possible often and not to take any kind of shortcuts. So how do you get a, a short, punchy, concise article out of someone for whom that's just not what they're used to doing? Well, that is the real challenge, I guess, and that's where the experienced journalists who work for the conversation come in. There are many who take to journalistic writing like ducks to water, but for others it's a, it's a real learning curve. As journalists, we're all t- taught about you know the inverted pyramid um, of the way you order your information in a story um, to make it compelling. Quite often, the core information in an academic journal article will be a summary at the end, probably where most journalists turn when they're reading academic literature. But for those who uh, want to do it and enjoy it, I think it can be really rewarding. Perhaps academics are used to working with longer time frames as well, but you're on a, a deadline like any news service. These, these pieces have to be out daily. Is this a case of you, um, sometimes the academics kind of dreading almost your call, like they've got enough to do and suddenly a conversation's on the line saying, give me 800 words on this topic and you're giving them extra work. If an academic expert gets in touch because something's happened and they want to write about it quickly, that's a dream day for us, uh, as long as the subject is newsworthy and so on. A really good example of that was when the Tonga eruption happened, happened earlier this year. There's a volcanologist at Auckland University named Shane Cronin who happens to be one of possibly only two experts on that particular volcano. He got in touch with us immediately after the news broke and turned a piece around overnight New Zealand time that went on to be read about a million times around the world. So it is a challenge for some academics to get their heads around the tight deadline timeframes of daily digital journalism, because that's what it is. But many um, find it liberating, I think, um, once they realise that it doesn't have to be footnoted and referenced in the same way that their um, academic writing would be. How do you know, though, that it's cutting through? Because your stuff goes out on a whole lot of other platforms because it's free to use. That's right. I mean, we publish everything under the Creative Commons licence as a not-for-profit. Mainstream media are free to uh, republish what they want. And And that is the way that our content gets massively amplified. Very often it's when the likes of RNZ and other media organisations in New Zealand and overseas pick it up that um, the numbers start to climb. We we track our metrics as they're known, just like every digital organisation does these days. Um, We have quite good deep analytics. So there's very serious topics, uh, obviously a lot about COVID because that is a technical issue uh, where a lot of academics have valuable expertise. Uh, There's things about diplomacy, for example, 
Alexander Gillespie at Waikato University writing about the uh, Chinese challenge in the Pacific. But there's also stuff like, I mean, here among the recent publications, Judy Garland at 100 and how she shaped the modern uh, movie musical Top Gun. Maverick is a film obsessed with its former self by Eric Harrington at University of Canterbury. So you can you can be as broad and as pop culture as you like, as well as serious. Well, absolutely. I mean, as many departments and disciplines as there are in your average university, there are that many potential subject areas. So our main regional operation, which is based in Australia and Melbourne, have just launched a books and ideas section, which is where some of that stuff is now going. It's lots of fun. I, you know, I want to see more of that. And what are the top topics that have got the analytics going when you've hmm. put them up online? Clearly, um, at the height of the pandemic, uh, we saw a huge spike in numbers. Uh, I think partly because of that as well, New Zealand's response was of great interest overseas. And I know it's a cliche, but news you can use... Recently in Australia, uh, they published a piece about, which was scientific evidence supporting um, the the practice of removing your shoes before you come inside the house because it really is a primary hygiene um, tactic. Now, that was read everywhere. That's the kind of thing that, you know, really appeals. But that's true of most new, news organisations, I think. So seeing as you have a keen eye on the analytics, can you power rank your top New Zealand academic contributors? Who's your top three? You've put me on the spot there. <laughs> well, maybe it's a good um, thing you don't look at them that, that so closely and be guided just by top hits. I think all journalists should avoid being a slave to clicks. You know, it, it's that, that's a, that's a one-way trip to you know media hell, really. But we're all slaves to the algorithm to some extent, aren't Indeed. we? I think the most popular piece that we've published in those past five years, or certainly in the past three was by Suze Wilson from Massey University, uh, which was looking at Jacinda Ardern's pandemic leadership. I like the piece I mentioned previously about the Tongan um, volcanic eruption was another case of of extremely high reads. But, yeah, I'd have to go back and actually check what the the top ten was. So has COVID... I mean, it's changed so many things for the media, changed the focus, and there was a lot in the mainstream media doing explainer-type stuff, even entire podcasts, daily ones, devoted to nothing but COVID developments and so on. Did you feel like perhaps, you know, when the media climbed into COVID in a big way, they're almost like parking a tank on your lawn and this this could have been the area you could have cleaned up in? Yes, and I think that that's just an ongoing reality for um, a media platform like ours. There will be crossover and there will be things that journalists can simply react faster to than we can, and we just accept that. But getting a piece of expert analysis of a difficult subject um, from the person who actually understands it best still has a lot of cut through. If you can turn it around quickly, I think it's really valuable to most news organisations to have that as part of their menu of, of offerings. You know, And all of the New Zealand universities are backing this and contributing, uh, which mm-hmm. is where the money comes from, I guess. What is it that they want for their investment? And are they quite benign owners or do they from time to time you know, give you a nudge and say, hey, we want to see more of our people, <laughs> our own staff reflected in this? Is that that kind of pressure? We maintain um, a high level of uh, editorial independence. It's true that the funding base uh, comes from university memberships. The the quid pro quo is that we treat 
their authors very professionally uh, and their voices get amplified significantly. And generally speaking, the universities um, are, are really happy with, with the way we work and the way we collaborate with them in much the same way that, that um, news organisations are because, you know, it's, it's no secret that, you know, since the internet arrived, you know, the, the whole journalistic model has changed. So resources are squeezed, newsrooms are smaller... It's just harder to to run the kind of operations that that I grew up, um, you know, learning my journalistic um, chops and, you know, when advertising was a river of gold. So um, so it's kind of a virtuous circle in that sense. Now, earlier you mentioned that this is available, the content from The Conversation New Zealand to other media outlets because of the Creative Commons licensing under those terms. Creative Commons licensing is this almost under-discussed, almost almost secret part of the media, which allows things to be distributed widely, but ownership terms and conditions to remain uh, with authors and content creators. Absolutely. I mean, it's central to the conversations model as a not-for-profit um, organisation. So while the author retains copyright of their work, the understanding is that it will be published and available free as long as republishers accept the terms and conditions of the Creative Commons licence. Um, and I, I don't pretend to understand all of the ins and outs of how Creative Commons works, but it, you can stipulate how a piece can be republished. Can it be used commercially? Usually not. Can it be edited? Can the derivatives be made from it? And so on and so forth. So it's quite tightly controlled, but in the process um, you get uh, the ability to publish free information, which... I remember being the uh, the great ideal that was promised by the internet in the early days. Well, actually, in earlier times, you were the editor of the Listener magazine, then um, a book book editor at a major publisher as well. So, uh, academic publishing a little bit different, and academic freedom is seems to be an increasingly hot topic these days in a couple of ways, both for you know individual academics who might be studying areas that are controversial or themselves saying things that are um, perhaps unpopular with some, and also outside pressures, things like international influences and corporate funding and sponsorship of university projects and institutions. So is this anything that affects or constricts the conversation? Well, it's certainly a topic that we've had um, experts write about because it's of not just academic freedom, but freedom of expression and freedom of assembly and all of the things that have become quite you know, hot topics during the pandemic and and anti-mask protests and so on and so forth. We take a lot of care to to vet what is being pitched at us. You know, we're careful about what the research uh, is and how it's funded. And we have we have a disclosure statement that all authors are required to fill in where they disclose any funding that might be relevant to what they're writing about or any membership of organisations that are relevant. So we try to be as transparent as possible on that front, and that's the best we can do. Other parts of the media have been, to greater or lesser extents, drawn into you know culture wars and claims mm. that they're all subject to wokeness, political correctness, all that sort of stuff. Does that come your way, or are you, as a sort of not-for-profit and university-based outlet, sort of seen as perhaps being, uh, you know, somehow apart from those sorts of rows? <laughs> no, I think we get drawn into those rows in various ways. I, don't, I think that's inevitable. I mean, universities themselves are forums for intense debate about all of those issues, so that will surface via the conversation in different ways. But generally, we would treat it as a topic, uh, you know, to be discussed and analysed openly and honestly, as opposed to something to be scared of. 
And where can the conversation go from here in its, say, next five years? I mean, are you perhaps a bit hidebound by the fact that you have to have the the eight universities uh, all backing you to do what you do? Or is there a way you can draw in another partner, a sponsor, investment, if you have want to branch out into, I don't know, podcast, video, whatever? You're right. We are slightly constrained by scale, um, you, as are <laughs> many organisations in New Zealand. Um, and I would imagine that, that while the growth will continue, um, it, can't, it can't sort of stay on a steep upward trajectory forever. What I would prefer to do is try and broaden our offering and, as I said earlier, try to get more um, authors writing about uh, other areas beyond sort of the core, the core topics of politics and science and, and the research around, around those areas and health and so on. That was Finlay MacDonald, Senior Editor in New Zealand for The Conversation, an online outlet backed by New Zealand's universities, which publishes articles by their academics and experts, free to read and free for the rest of the media to republish. And this week, The Conversation New Zealand marked five years in operation. Well, that's all we have for you in Media Watch this weekend, but we'll be back with more on the media in Midweek Media Watch at about 10.30 next Wednesday night on Lately with Karen Hay. And then back with more Media Watch at the same time next weekend here on RNZ National.